a lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher and comedian and professional fangirl Stephanie Malik. With a pencil-thin mustache and a vicious wit, writer, essayist, and director John Waters is now maybe more recognizable as a delightful cameo than as a groundbreaking arthouse filmmaker. But not only did John Waters bring Raunch, his fabulous group of weirdo buddies, the Dreamlanders, and a sardonic point of view to film, he also brought unapologetic queerness and became a role model for those who would seek and obtain mainstream acceptance while allowing their freak flags to fly. And that's the theme of today's episode. Embrace the counterculture and to heck with what anyone else thinks. But before we get into that, Steph Malik, you know John Waters as a personality from a place I think a lot of our listeners know him from as well. Uh, yeah, I was introduced to John Waters as a kid uh, through The Simpsons, uh, as most of us first uh, saw him uh, being a campy store owner uh, with fabulous Hawaiian shirts, uh, who inspires Bart at one point to get a shirt to come out of the closet. Um, yeah. <laughs> he goes zap like he's the one who has the zap is that uh, him? I think so yeah he facilitates the situation where Bart can then use the ray gun and say zap and somehow him saying zap with a bit of a lisp leads Homer to thinking Bart's gay Okay. And then they do a kind of conversion, like they try to do conversion therapy on Bart, even though oh, it's 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 a off-color episode that we I think all grew up with that watching it today, and it definitely aligns with one of the films we're going to talk about is um concerning. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's yeah. funny the assumptions people make about uh, the queerness of their children. I remember my dad getting very concerned about me because I had a, a bunch of, I got really into paper dolls as a kid. Like this is my thing. I think I was like maybe six or seven, like very into them. And I had Zigfield Folly paper dolls with like like the full ornate, <laughs> I know, he's just like, sorry, what? Yeah, they had like the full ornate headdresses and like the see-through stuff. And my father, very like, um, I want to say diplomatically said, what is it that interests you about the female form? <laughs> That's so funny. It was really interesting. I don't know why that stuck in my head as something of like, oh, you thought I was gay. Thanks, Dad. That definitely explains your love of Busby Berkeley. (laughs) Good on your dad, though, for like a a gentle way of checking in. (laughs) What's going on? (laughs) He's he's always been good like that. He listens to this show. So hi, Dad. Uh, But let's get back to John Waters, a man who I'm sure a lot of people, as they were watching movies, questioned their own sexuality, being like, oh, this is interesting. Is this for me? Do I like Divine? Do I find Divine attractive? I personally find Divine attractive, so it's one of those things. And of course, the rest of the Dreamlanders. Alicia, what should people know about John Waters? I mean, we talked previously about your desire to get a lobster tattoo thanks to multiple maniacs, so we know you know what you're up to. Well, that did come up last season on the podcast. Yeah, well, Multiple Maniacs is his first film that he made in Baltimore. Uh, I believe shot on 16mm. This will come up in Cecil B. Demented, but these were um, a group of people called the Dreamlanders headed by John Waters who were very inspired to make their own films that doesn't mean they knew how to make films (laughs) in terms of technique you know they were really the definition of DIY filmmakers everyone kind of quotes Pink Flamingos which I think is uh, 72 as their first film and that's not actually the case it is Multiple Maniacs which has been relatively recently restored um, and does have a giant climax in the film with a a huge lobster that is the reference to the possible tattoo I'm going to get they were crass. They were um, depraved. I mean, these are all demented. Like so many, just name any word that is like negative, And that's probably something that Waters has been accused of. Something like Pink Flamingos is very noted for its uh, scene of divine eating dog feces, which, um, you know, because they didn't have special effects or CGI, they just had divine eat dog feces <laughs> as you as you do. Yep. Um, you got to get that became, airplay somehow. Breakthrough, you know, it's just YouTube before YouTube. I get yeah, it. Yeah, and, it be, you know, they became really notorious. But there was, you know, this is coming up at the same time that Andy Warhol is experimenting with film technique and this kind of circle of, you know, non-commercial film, experimental film, but also, you know, niche and midnight movies and uh, cult classics were all of a sudden now a thing in the 70s, and they weren't prior. So there's this great sort of 1970s into the early 80s condition where someone like John Waters would be considered the Pope of trash, Um, you know, the king of filth. Like, he really just 
branded himself and his Dreamlanders, especially with Divine at his side. And then by the late 80s, it changes because he makes Hairspray. And we, of course, talked last season about our love of Hairspray and that remake from 2007. And he kind of goes a little bit more family friendly. Um, Even something like Serial Mom, which we've talked about on the show. You know, he does go a little more commercial, but even when he's doing commercial, he is still, you know, making a film that is pretty depraved and subversive and... uh, you know, he, he's a serial mom. He's using Kathleen Turner. And here in Cecil B. Demented, he's working with Hollywood royalty, Melanie Griffith. Yeah. So by 2000, and this is his second last film, uh, A Dirty Shame is 2004. He's really stopped making films post-2004, which isn't to say he's an active. He's like always popping up in great documentaries. Like if you can get John Waters on your documentary talking about just about anything, you are very, very lucky. Um, and I think he's like, I saw him recently, he played the director William Castle on Feud. <laughs> And then also I was checking his credits and I realized that this year he appears as a character in Law & Order SVU and he's credited as Pornographer Man or Pornmongerer Man. That's his name, Pornmongerer Man. So I, I haven't watched SVU in a while. That this hasn't happened before is something that is just wild to me. This just seems like a por- part he was born to play. I've heard he's a big fan of Law and Order, especially Special Victims Unit, which I shouldn't <laughs> laugh at, but it's slightly fitting. Everybody um, loves Ice T. I get it. Yeah, also, yeah. Good for so him I, yeah. for making yeah. his mark and just saying, like, you know what? I am John Waters. Everyone knows who I am, even if they don't know who I am. Like they yes. don't know my history. So I'm going to take that and I'm going to run with it, and I'll be on whatever show I feel like and just have fun with he's it. He's a real tastemaker. Like he does throw a Berkeley area kind of concert where he has handpicked the bands and I've some of my favorite bands of all time like Shannon and the Clams have come out of kind of John Waters promoting them um, he has a summer camp in the Catskills that, uh, <laughs> can we go yeah, well, eventually, will, well. <laughs> eventually you will be able to do so Steph's face right now is priceless people she's so I've, excited I've looked into it it is quite expensive but I think very worth it it is somehow related to a th- I could be totally talking out of my ass but I think somehow it is partnered with the B-52s, and I know one of the B-52s is uh, has a Catskills kind of camp that I think she's got on the market, so I don't know what that means. She does. But... It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's I've amazing. always wanted to stay there. Yeah. But, th- you know, he's a real he's a real figure. Like, it doesn't matter that he's not making films, and obviously he's in his 70s at this point. He has just branded himself and branched out in a way that he's just John Waters, and that's why The Simpsons would do a whole episode around him, for sure. Well, and um, around queerness, because it's something he, as I mentioned earlier, he very much brought to the mainstream by making someone like Divine an absolute star, um, and even all of his stuff, like, has a little bit to do with being outsiders, but still having a group and chosen family that's why they're called the the dreamlanders which is very much an, a queer necessity is what john waters is all about and as you see he just sort of collects people along the way and they pop up including patricia hurst who we're going to be talking yeah. about in a moment which is just the most wild thing um but to get into our first film as we've discussed uh one of the most relatable aspects of waters work is his cutting take on society so when he took on filmmaking both mainstream and independent in 2000 cecil be demented Things got vicious and weird and raunchy. No surprise there. And I have to admit the first time I watched this all over the place little satire that I really wasn't sure it was for me. Um, But the more I watched it, the more I was absolutely charmed by it. But he was coming off mainstream hits like Serial Mom. And uh, to steal your excellent phrase, Alicia, this feels like a creator nuking his career from space in a movie that features, count them, four Oscar nominees and a prolific Hallmark movie actress in very compromising situations. Alicia, Cecil B. Demented, what do you think? What's this one about? You know, when we designed this episode, I was concerned because I remember loving this film and I figured it wouldn't hold up. I, I I guess that's the glass half full and or glass half empty in me. And oh my God, was I wrong? It's really fun. And in some ways, I think it's more relevant in 2021 than it probably was in 2000. And maybe that's just because I matured. Like when I saw one of the lead characters with a rw fassbender tattoo i lost my mind and you know me in my early 20s did not know who fassbender was so like or even otto preminger or all of these filmmakers that now as a cinephile seeing this cast of characters with like a moldavar tattoos and sam peckinpah and you know william castle like it's it just tickled me so much um and at the same time it's making fun of people like me which 
I like to take the piss out of myself. So seeing that, I'm just like, please, John Waters, skewer my civilization and my whole way of living, because it is definitely something that could be critiqued. But um, this is about a, a group of people led by uh, a director named Cecil B. Demented, obviously a play on Cecil B. DeMille, uh, who kidnap a very prominent but trashy and kind of terrible actress named uh, Honey Whit- Whitlock. You're just Honey such Whitlock. a great name. It's such a John Waters name and such a great mm-hmm. Hollywood name. It's excellent. Yeah. And if I was trying to think, like, who is her comparable? And I think she's kind of like a Julia Roberts sort of in, like, the 2010s. Like, someone who was really big but then kind of is forced to do smaller films because no one wants to work with her. We also um, thought maybe Julianne about- Moore. It was the haircut. Yeah, yeah, there's an element of Julianne Moore. And certainly you're right, stuff with the haircut, like the red hair, bangs. They kidnap her from her film premiere, which is happening in Baltimore. And right away, she's pissed off to be in Baltimore. Um, She calls it a crap town. And they hold her hostage and make this sort of um, renegade, outlaw cinema, 16 millimeter film where they all perform their own stunts. Um, They're like robbing people, essentially blowing up stuff, throwing grenades at the uh, luncheon for the Baltimore Film Commissioner, which <laughs> was the real film commissioner, apparently is in one of these scenes. Uh, he, they forced them to uh, maniacally eat oysters. <laughs> it's the most disgusting sound effects I've ever heard oh. in my life. Yeah, So gross, right? Um, and it's this like idea of punishing bad cinema, of bringing power back to the image, um, you know, celebrating people like Fassbender and Moldavar and Kenneth Anger. This is a very early role from Maggie Gyllenhaal, who is a makeup artist um, in the film. Also, like, the earliest role I've ever heard of for Mike Shannon, yes. who is Michael Shannon. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's this queer character. He's so fucking good. He's great. I mean, this is just, there's a lot of fun here, and there's a lot of recognizable faces that would go on to do really, really big things. And I think that's something that um, Waters is so good at, is discovering talent. I would agree. You are watching him both comment on the modern state of film, which in the 2000s, as we are kind of going to be exploring it, this is our first episode of the 2000s, so we'll be getting into more of it. You are starting to see like, okay, you're starting to see retreads of a lot, a lot of sequels in theaters, um, something he makes fun of very much. Although he did not go far enough because he talks about Lake Lake Placid 2 and Scream 2. There are now five Scream movies with a six greenlit after the fifth comes out next year. And there are six Lake Placid movies, including a crossover with Anaconda. So it's one of those like he's bang what? on. And you're referencing Becky the opening credits. Yes. Where we, they're all done on a movie marquee, which is really smart. And uh, it's Scream 4. Yes. So it's even more egregious than Scream 2. <laughs> and yes, yeah, Scream 4 has happened. It's the Postman 2. Yeah. Um, I definitely know Vertigo the remake has not. Well, maybe it has <laughs> yes. happened actually over and over and over again. We just don't call it Vertigo the remake. But all these fake films and a few of them actually ended up coming true, which is is well, very much and how... And the, the filming of, like, Star Trek, Star Wars, Star Trek, Star Wars, like, yeah, that's exactly what's happening right now. Good work, John Waters. Steph, what did you make of that? Like, was it something that, watching it, you were, like, as someone who's not necessarily a cinephile, is it something that I was like, okay, yeah, this is ridiculous, Hollywood history? It's amazing how, how much he predicted the future. Like, mm-hmm. uh, in the 2000s, I don't know necessarily, at least... I was never not in a place to be like, oh, media, let me critique it. Uh, let, me, <laughs> let me take a look at it. But You weren't reading back, M- Marshall McLuhan when you were like 16? <laughs> look, when I saw the Fassbender tattoo, I was like, was Michael Fassbender around back then? <laughs> yes! <laughs> I love it. That's so great. Um, but no, it was, it was amazing just to see how little has changed. Uh, if he was able to make these critiques, you know, 21 years ago, how nothing has changed in our society. And he's just bang on about... Our future—it's a little—it's a little depressing. Of just like, wow, we're not creative at all, are we? But he's also poking yeah. fun at the independent filmmaking process as well, yeah. because he's like, these yeah. people are maniacs and they're making a movie that no one will watch. And he's talking about also his own early years, where like they didn't get permits and they got arrested repeatedly and they, you know, invaded places. <laughs> and so he's like, yeah, 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 we are totally these maniacs. And although you're kind of on our side, you're also kind of not. So I think that's why young me watching this was like. I don't know what to do here because I don't know, like, there's no clear path of who I'm supposed to be rooting for at this time because I don't like Honey Whitlock. And I think that Maggie Gyllenhaal is cool, but, like, I also understand that the mainstream is terrible. Like, I don't, where am I supposed to be? A Satanist makeup artist. It almost doesn't look like Maggie Gyllenhaal. It's, It's very clever. 
In the House of Pain, there are 10,000 shrines. Alistair Crowley said that. I think watching it just currently where we are right now, and we're in a better place coming out of lockdown and things are hopeful, but just for me, seeing a celebration of movie theaters, a celebration, the climax of the film takes place at a very, very famous drive-in that I'm dying to go to that's still standing called Benji's Drive-In in Baltimore. Um, super classic. Like just seeing cinema as an activity and cinema going as still something that's viable. And, um, you know, it's filmed predominantly at the Senator, which is a stunning like art nouveau or art modern i'm not sure which um movie theater in built in in baltimore that's still going it's also filmed partially at the hippodrome which is now like a music venue and theater venue but then when he was filming in 2000 or even 1999 was completely abandoned and dilapidated everyone got so sick on set from this film because of filming in the hippodrome which is just full of mold today it's one of the most beautifully restored movie theaters in america but then it was like you know you you needed a tetanus shot to even set foot in it um, so I have so much respect for his love of movie going and all the accoutrement of the communal act of watching movies together. I think that's really what this film is about. So watching it in 2021 in a city where three of us are in Toronto, where we haven't had cinemas open for a very long time, I felt very nostalgic. Steph, I have to ask you, because you haven't watched a lot of John Waters films, correct? Like, what's kind of the, your pantheon of knowledge at this point? Um, so it's actually bigger than I thought it was when I started talking about it with a friend. They're like, oh, well, you should watch Serial Mom. I'm like, I've seen Serial Mom. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize that was John Waters. Um, yeah, I I grew up uh, having seen the original Hairspray. Um, but as a kid, obviously, it seems more of a cartoon than any sort yeah. of like commentary or any um, particular view on the world. I was just like, oh, these are fun characters and they're dancing and that's nice. And then growing up, obviously, realizing the the tension that is represented in there and yeah. not only racially, but also, you know, the fat phobia and trying to find your place in the world. And it's so it's, transgressive for a family film. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah. even just like uh, Tracy's mom being uh, played by a man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was not a thing that I would have even thought of as a kid. But now I'm like, thank God for you, John Waters. Like, thank you for doing that. Even in Cecil B. Demented, the fact that um, someone is clearly either genderqueer or a trans man in the yeah. cast. And it's not acknowledged. It just is. And that was... It's not even mentioned. It's, 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 and it's not that it's ambiguous. It just is. That's the perfect way is. of putting it, stuff Like... It just is. And I don't, there's not a lot of trans representation in, and I'm not going to say this is a big Hollywood film, but there's not a lot of trans representation in film in general in 2000. Like, there just yeah. isn't. And especially trans men or trans masculine yeah. folks. Like you see a lot more, obviously, unfortunately played for comedy, uh, a lot more trans women or mm -hmm. uh, trans feminine folks. But to see a trans masculine person in 2000s is just like, are you, that's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. And oh. not an actor- like Hilary Swank in 99 playing a trans man, but actually someone who is trans and not even as a trans character, just just they're in the film. They're just one of the the cr crew of terrorists that are like making yeah. this insane film. We should say the way that Cecil B. Demented, um, the person motivates his, his crew is that he, he won't allow them to masturbate or have sex until the film is done. And so they're all incredibly horny and humping things all the time. I know that I shouldn't have even said this because this might turn some people off this film. Get as drunk as Sam Peckinpah, as high as Rainer Werner Fassbender, but stay celibate for celluloid. And Alicia, Alicia Witt is a porn star in this. She plays um, in all, she acts in all of Honey Whitlock's porn parodies. Uh, and I really love that because she was a pretty big star in 2000. She's kind of faded since. But She's uh, now a Hallmark movie so actress and she's actually in oh, a number yeah. of my favorite Hallmark movies. She does the particularly weird ones, like one where she's a mall Santa. Um, and there's like a whole, Wallace Shawn is her guardian <laughs> angel. That one's, that one's real good. <laughs> Gabrielle, oh, uh, oh, Gabrielle, what's her last name from Corner Gas is the bad guy in that one. It's, that one's actually a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, to see her in this. And oh. it's interesting the way they've kind of dressed her up because uh, I was watching it and my partner came in and he's like, are you watching a movie that has Britney Spears in it? And I'm like, no. And it took hmm. me a second. And they have. She looks almost identical to Britney Spears in the blonde wig. Like I look. I had to do a double take. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Hmm. Like we're really close to that. So it's interesting to see kind of what they because there's a lot of changing appearances in this. There's lots of wigs. Everybody's dyeing their hair. Everybody's looking a little bit different. And there's there's something to that in the the yeah trying to be other people and 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 becoming somebody else physically and therefore now you're somebody else internally. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of transformation. 
Speaking of which, we should probably talk about Patty Hearst. Yes. <laughs> yes, let's talk about Patty Hearst. Steph, do you remember? Because Patty Hearst in Serial Mom um, is the actress at the end who uh, is wearing the white shoes after Labor Day that then Kathleen Turner, like, attempts to murder at the courthouse. <laughs> I, I don't remember that specific moment, but looking at, like, knowing who Patty Hearst is, like, it's... It's wild that this woman has taken, like, from her background and her family history and then just being in all of these wild movies. It's it's so fun and refreshing. Yeah. Like, I I don't know much about her background, but I assume that she's just, like, a bit of the freak of the family. And I love it. Yeah. Kind I of. Knew. Well, uh, my Alicia, God, the do you want to run us down? <laughs> full of freaks, really. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, she's the one that's uh, kidnapped by the Simbanese army in the, yeah. I want to say, 1975. And, uh... 74, yeah. 74, yeah. Right, the trial is 1975. And they put her up to uh, some bank robberies. Um, and she's kidnapped for like almost a year, I think, and held captive. And there's obviously some elements of Stockholm Syndrome, but there's also elements of like her just needing to survive. She was obviously sexually assaulted multiple times in this scenario. And then because she's on camera robbing a bank, which we know she was held, you know, she was forced to do. They arrested her and put her, like, on trial. Um, and she's an incredibly famous heiress. Uh, and from the Hearst, you know, if you've seen yep. Citizen Kane, that's obviously a, a reference to William Randolph Hearst. That's uh, uh, his granddaughter. His granddaughter, yeah. Um, and she's really, like, her reputation's destroyed. And it's really John Waters who befriends her right after kind of her trial uh she does go to jail and then she's a she's acquitted or it's um what's the term for yes she was pardoned so her sentence pardoned, was commuted yeah. by jimmy carter and then she was later pardoned by bill bill clinton yeah. so she was only in she was sentenced to 35 years and she was only in prison for seven which is still you know it's so crazy bonkers. it's still insane and as friends with john waters she i think the first film she appears in his is crybaby yes as, that's right. uh tracy porn star tracy lord's mother which i really <laughs> love wanda i think is her character's name but uh She's just, you know, she doesn't appear in other films very often. There's a great film directed by Paul Schrader about her, um, which I would encourage everyone to see that he made in the 80s. Um, but she's someone that is so tongue-in-cheek about her own persona. And you're right. it's crazy stuff. You're right. Like, the idea of her doing Cecil B. Demented, even though she's always in um, these films, is crazy because it's about kidnapping someone and forcing them to commit crimes under duress and threatening their life and dyeing their hair, which they did to Patty Hearst. And... It is, uh, and she plays the mother of one of the demented crew um, of Fidget, and it's pretty funny when she's very conservative and speaking out about the the harm that cinema can do to youth. Fidget, it's mommy. We know you've seen too many R-rated movies, and we're here to help. The fact that she is friends with John Waters at all is wild to me. And of course, John Waters goes to trials for fun. Because of course he does. Because what else are you going to do in Baltimore? And so he actually attended her trial because it was in Baltimore. And he hung out there. And that's when he first saw her. And then he met her at Cannes and um, was like, oh, I'm writing something for you. And I've always been a big fan of yours. And and that's when he sent her the script for Crybaby. And she auditioned. And then they became best buddies. And now she's in this. But I think it's interesting that you've got this woman who comes from this dynasty and heiress in this film. But then Melanie Griffith as you mentioned before earlier, Alicia, is Hollywood royalty. So it's interesting she's in this as well. There's another layer of meta there. I don't think a lot of people maybe know now that she's Tippi Hedren's daughter. I think people don't know who Tippi Hedren is. That would be my (laughs) figure. Her her stardom has surpassed her mother's. And for our listeners who don't know who Tippi Hedren is, she was the star of Hitchcock's first Marnie and then the Birds. Um, Very statuesque, blonde. You can picture her just being attacked by birds over and over again. Tippi Hendren, the one who had a bunch of wildlife and ended up yes, with like seventy lions. That's and it. Yes. Yep. So Roar would be the yep. title. I believe Melanie Griffith's face was ripped off in that. Yeah, that is she's correct. She's fourteen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's yeah. And Melanie Griffith starts acting at a very young age. She's in Night Moves in nineteen seventy five, which is an incredibly upsetting film that is amazing. But uh, yeah, she really her stardom today has really surpassed her mother's. But yeah, she's Holly, ho- absolute Hollywood royalty. Um, kind of, you know, related by by maternally related to like Alfred Hitchcock, if if we can say that. Well, I want to bring us into um, uh, her a little bit because she's not someone who you would think would be in this film. Like at this point, like her career, I wouldn't say it's on the down, but like she hadn't had like a major hit in a long time. But she had been doing a bunch of really weird movies at 
the encouragement of Antonio Banderas, who we also know likes to do a lot of really Who she was married things. to at the time. Yes, that's say. correct. Yeah. Aren't they, are they still married or did they get no. divorced? They no. were divorced Very... in 2015, yeah. according to her <sighs> Wikipedia. Exceptionally divorced, I believe. <laughs> uh, but she's in a new movie of his. He's directing oh. a new movie she's in. So obviously I mean, they, they have kids. I think they're still like be friendly. I mean, she's also, we should say, the mother of... Dakota Johnson, which I feel like, unfortunately, more people probably know Dakota Johnson of a certain age group. This is Melody how Griffin. Hollywood royalty works. Yes. I'm sure at yes. some point Billy Lord will be more famous than Carrie Fisher, which is going to be a very weird thing as well. Yeah. And I'm, you bring up Patty Hearst. Her daughter is Lydia Hearst, who's married to Chris Hardwick, who's like a big mm-hmm. nerd and fandom. Like they're mm-hmm. they're they're known. <laughs> it, yeah. it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. There's um, a lot of genealogy happening yes. right now. <laughs> we just need some sort of flow chart. Uh, we should also probably, do you want to talk about Mink Stoll and how sure. Mink Stoll, yeah. Mink Stoll is another Dreamlander who people, it's one of those, like, she's very much a character actor when you see her. She's actually going to be in our second film as well. Um, and when you see her, you're like, ah, it's Mink Stoll. She always gets, even though she doesn't have a ton to do in every John Waters movie, she always gets the best, weirdest thing to do. And I always appreciate this. And here, she's being abusive to a child with an oxygen tank as she's, like, smiling in front of a room full of people. It just, it's, it's rough but in a most delightful sort of way. William had heart surgery just seven days ago. I don't want to be here. William's a little grumpy. Get off of me ugly. But he's alive and that's what happens. Yeah I love Ming Stool. I mean she's also notable because she's one of the only surviving Dreamlanders. Like you can look up the Dreamlanders names someone like Cookie Mueller. Um, they all die pretty tragically um, either from addiction uh, quite a, I think more than one from HIV and AIDS uh, she's really the last remaining dreamlander so she is in all of his films of course and she's um, such a lovely historian of that era kind of a, an adjacent historian to John Waters about Baltimore filmmaking and she's so funny in this she's also I mean not to spoil it but we are going to talk about but I'm a cheerleader she's also in but I'm a cheerleader so I think that that's a major John Waters connection to that film but yeah she basically um I, you know, tr- cuts off the oxygen of a child in a wheelchair who is, you know, being a dick at his own yeah. little charity, you know, fundraiser. But uh, she gets it in the end. There's <laughs> a real comeuppance that John no Waters spoilers. gives her. No spoilers. Yeah. This is kind of the last of the mainstream acceptance for John Waters. After this point, like this this movie lost so much money in box office. But weirdly, according to him, it supposedly was the number two selling video between Jerry Maguire and The Rock, despite not being covered by, uh, uh, not being carried by Blockbuster. And this is according to John Waters, so who knows if it's true. But... <laughs> I I could see that happening. This seems like one of those ones that like you wouldn't go see it in the theater, but you would be like, yeah, I'm going to rent this and watch it quietly by myself. And yeah, especially as a young person, like this horny, weird movie, like, of course, you're going to be like 16 and be like, hey, hey, hey I'm going to go into the, the suspect video and go into the back and find this movie and feel like a really cool badass because you're watching this like underground film. Well, I think that leads us perfectly into our next film. When we we come back we're going to be looking at a movie that again ahead of its time as it talks about gender in a time queerness was just talking about sexuality that's coming up after the break this has been a season of unlikely satire subject matter have a look at our episode on seven beauties for one example Conversion therapy is at best sticky and at worst a heinous subject for a comedy. But I think the multicolored camp fest that is But I'm a Cheerleader navigates the satire waters extremely well. In between the -the over-the-top characters, one of them being a butch-fronting RuPaul Charles, among other amazing character actor performances that we are definitely going to get into, is a poignant story of pain, love, and chosen family. Steph, I know you have a very particular connection to this movie. Let's talk But I'm a cheerleader and what it's about and what it means to you. Yeah, so But I'm a Cheerleader uh, came out in the late 90s, and it is a story about Natasha Lyonne, a young high school girl who doesn't seem to realize she's queer, um, but everyone around her knows. They see all the telltale signs. She's got pictures up of women in her locker. Uh, she's, it looks a little too long at things, doesn't like kissing her disgusting boyfriend. 
Um, I can watch her kiss people like that for hours. Just the tongue. Ah, it's yeah, so yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, her family holds an intervention um, to uh, let her know that she's queer and that she's going to conversion camp. So she arrives uh, at this conversion camp. Everything is very either pink or blue, very shiny, very plastic. Um, and they're trying to teach her how to be straight. Uh, but while she's at this conversion camp, she meets Cleo Duval's character and um, something happens between them and she starts to, <laughs> no spoilers, um, but she starts to really identify with herself and kind of come to an understanding of who she is and what she wants. It, it doesn't hurt that Natasha Leone has like kind of curly blonde hair, um, <laughs> you know, this, this really uh, ingenue vibe. So it was, it was something very uh, clear that I could identify with when I was younger um, because I uh, Luckily, I, I knew I was queer. I wasn't I wasn't hiding that, but it was really yeah. nice to see a representation of just, you know, a fairly average girl um, being able to come to terms with who she is and then fall in love. Um, I cannot tell you how many times I've played on repeat uh, Glass Face Cello Case, which is yeah. the song that is playing while they're while they're making Aww. love for the first time. And it just is so such a oh, I'm getting emotional thinking about it because it's just such a beautiful scene and such a tender representation um, of falling in love uh, and yeah. finding yourself. It's such a great soundtrack. Just to come back to that song yeah. where the opening credits are to April March's Chick Habit. And that means that this film uses that song well before Quentin Tarantino did. And kind of like that song is so synonymous with him. And I would always get so frustrated. When I was like, no, that's actually the song from But I'm a Cheerleader. Sorry, QT. You you didn't do that first. This is a movie that I think if marketers got it, they would be like, what do I do with this? Who is this for? What circuit do I put this on? How many theaters do I release it into? And of course, it didn't do great in any of that way, but it has definitely found its audience now. I watched this, I think, in 2002, 2003 is when I found it and just fell absolutely in love with it, with the soundtrack being absolutely amazing. And these people just... In the wrong hands, this movie could have been, like I said, absolutely heinous because it is about conversion therapy, which is torture. Um, but it's also uh, full of these like giant over-the-top characters. But somehow these two performances, especially of Cleo Duval and Natasha Lyonne, who were best friends at the time, we're going to get into how they ended up doing it, their chemistry is so real and so honest that when they fall in love, you believe it. And when Natasha Lyonne has to win back Cleo Duval at the very, very end... Your heart hurts, and it's she cheers to get her back, and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's of course you had to cheer. Can't I'm crying just thinking about it. This is one of the most beautiful romantic films I think, and like genuinely romantic films I think I've ever seen. That was absolutely not received that way. No, no, <laughs> it was so it was so beautifully pure. Like that moment where anyone else coming out and doing that cheer, you'd be like, oh come on, this is yeah. so saccharine and yikes. Um, but Natasha Lyonne plays it with such deep honesty and purity Ugh. that you're just like, this is the most romantic thing I've ever seen in my life. I yeah. want someone to cheer for me. I don't. Yes. I, I would laugh at them. <laughs> but they um, take the time to explain what the cheering means and what the cheering means to her and why she has to cheer. And I mean, this is also talking about um, the, we talked about gender stuff as in the transition here. And this is dealing with gender and queerness. And there is someone who, you know, is uh, just very butch, uh, even though they oh. are heterosexual, but they are yeah. so determined that this That's person is gay. That's a great character. That's Jan? like my favorite character. Jan, yeah. Jan, yeah. Oh, it's just like, I love Dick. I love dick. <laughs> You're like, bless you, you sweet little queer. I mean, everybody thinks I'm this big dyke because because I wear baggy pants, I play softball, and I'm not as pretty as other girls, but it doesn't make me gay. I mean, I like guys. I can't help it. I just want a big fat wiener of my... Amen, sister. Yeah, Katrina Phillips plays Jan. I'm not sure. I don't think they have been in much after, but definitely one of the highlights of the film for me. Um, also, Melanie Linsky is in yes. this. And we've talked on the show about, um, in the TV version, Heavenly Creatures, which is a really great queer text as well. Um, and she, I know she was cast directly for this because the director had watched Heavenly Creatures. And, you know, that's a great lineage. Yeah, let's just a, a moment for Kate Winslet. Everyone's uh, wish yeah. you were queer along with <laughs> Natasha Leo. Just like, wait, you're an honorary queer. We have to give it to you. I love that. 
let's just get into Natasha Leone just for a second. We will talk about Clay Duvall, who is queer and actually talked about this film being the reason why she decided it was okay to come out publicly, which is, I mean, huge and groundbreaking. But Natasha Leone was actually at a really interesting point in her career here because she was coming off Slums of Beverly Hills, which is a huge movie and a lot of fun if people haven't seen it. Like, oh, she's amazing in David that. David Krumholtz in that film. Oh, God, I love it. <laughs> but she was acting from the age of six. Like, she was originally on Pee-wee's Playhouse. A lot of people might not remember her, that she was in that. She played Woody Allen's daughter in a film. Like, she'd been going for a long time. And the 2000s, she had been doing a lot of this indie stuff and stuff she really wanted to do. But she kind of fell off because, unfortunately, she fell into the wrong crowd and into severe, severe addiction issues. Yeah. She uh, is now much better. Uh, she had a massive scare. Um, and obviously, now we know her and she's becoming the star that she deserves to be in shows like Russian Doll and Orange is the New Black and things like As that. A producer more mm-hmm. than anything, right? Like she's, her, the projects she's producing are so inclusive and making huge headway for, you know, actually good media. The kind of stuff that someone like Cecil B. Demented would like. But you see her in a film like this and you're like, oh, what a waste that you like lost. And she says it herself. She's like, I wasted 15 years of my life to addiction. And you're just like, oh, what could we have had? But what you do get is the fact that she was coming from being an ingenue and she skipped immediately to being one of the greatest character actors of the 21st century. So, you know, you do you do get that as a nice little gift. I feel like I... I feel like a bit of a bad queer because everyone who watches this movie is like, Claire Duvall, oh my gosh, I love her so much. Graham is my favorite, oh, with that greasy hair. And I'm like, she's she's fine. <laughs> uh, I'm, definitely, I'm definitely more femme-oriented in this, in this movie specifically. But I know that for a lot of people, she was uh, a person who helped them come out uh, because they realized their attraction to her and was like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, no, I'm gay. Can you just remind me, she wasn't necessarily out when she filmed this. It was the aftermath of the film that she realized that her she had a lot in common with her character, basically. That is correct. And, and no, not and just that, wonderful. she helped write this. So originally, so she and Jamie Babbitt had done a, sh- done a short film called Sleeping Beauties, which is mm-hmm. delightful and features Rose McGowan as a dead, like, Courtney Love-style rock star who is over-OD'd, but they're putting out her album and they're uh, they're doing, like, a makeup job on her and they're doing photo shoots of her as a dead body. Anyway, Clea Duvall is in that. She's great. It's another very cute, like, queer um, falling in love. It's a mom telling her daughter about how their moms met uh, on the mm-hmm. set of this, like, bizarre photo shoot so she was in that and then she had a copy Jamie Babbitt was like I'm working on this someone had approached um, her to have the or with the with the script she Jamie Babbitt didn't write the script um, but uh, Clea Duvall was like I see a lot of myself in Graham and I want to play Graham but there's some stuff missing here so she they basically rewrote Graham for her it's her and everything that she kind of was standing for mm-hmm. and all the stuff she was asking herself at the time and that's why that character is as rounded as it is and then she was driving Natasha Leon home and it, the, the script was on the floor of her car and Natasha Leon was like, what's this? And started flipping through and was like, oh, I want to be in this movie. How do I be in this movie? So so Clea Duvall made a phone call to Jamie Babbitt and was like, do you want Natasha Leon in, her, in your movie? The answer, of course, was yes. Obviously. Yes. It sounds like kismet. I did read that it was uh, Jamie Babbitt was originally thinking um, Rosario Dawson for this role, which makes sense because, of course, um, she was kind of like led by the producers in the uh, studio to not cast a woman of color because they felt mm. that that wouldn't be commercial enough. Oh, so just it's, it's, even when you're making a transgressive, you know, queer text, you're still facing so much bullshit <laughs> from most likely male executives who are looking over your screenplay and looking over your shooting schedule and saying, you know, no, you can't, you can't cast a woman of color. That would be, you know, suicide. <laughs> like Ugh. what? It's shocking. And I know also that um, Arsenio Hall was given the screenplay and he was going to play the RuPaul character of Mike, which we haven't even talked about is one of the most fantastic characters. Uh, and he wouldn't do it because he thought it would ruin his career to play a gay man. that's so unfortunate well it's a good thing RuPaul was there because RuPaul at this point in time was not RuPaul as we know them to be like they um, I don't know I I know I know what you're saying like the drag race doesn't exist but like RuPaul was still a superstar in 2000 like if you think about like the music videos the Mac um, the Mac contract um, for you know for the being like a cover model for Mac like I feel like RuPaul even in like as a child when I watched this I knew 
I yeah. knew who RuPaul was. Right? But not yeah. as an actor, as a singer and a and a person. And and RuPaul is not playing RuPaul. RuPaul is out of drag. Like it's not like she shows up and she's like the fairy godmother, True. which is yeah. interesting. And yeah, she's butch. Fair. She's butch as hell. She's like, come on, get under this car and let's but do I things. Do but like RuPaul, RuPaul version RuPaul... of butch. Yes, exactly. Like, it's still very femmy. <laughs> yeah. If I catch you looking at another man like that ever again, you'll be watching sports the whole weekend. I I do love though that with RuPaul, like I think it's the thing that now when you watch RuPaul, you kind of don't. The humor is kind of meh. like I I don't yeah. find RuPaul particularly funny. I think RuPaul has really bought into RuPaul, um, but yep. at the time, just so goofy and just very talented as an actor. And it's it's almost a shame that um, he didn't do much more because I think in this movie he's so fabulous. He plays the mm-hmm. like the the jokes so well but also plays like this this undercurrent the entire time of just this this longing of just like self-loathing that he can't be gay but this longing for uh the the, the leader of new directions her son who, rock who eddie Sibirin. To- young yeah. and the restless is eddie Sibirin, which i love yeah his dancing is just the, it makes me so happy <laughs> oh with the weed whacker yep yeah the weed whacker <laughs> dance is iconic I do. I mean, you know, I think that what you're talking about, Steph, with the RuPaul character of Mike, I think that's echoed also in Kathy Moriarty's character of this, you know, very corrupt and uh, morally and ethically bankrupt woman who's running this conversion camp. You know, I think she's I think she's coded as closeted. Like to me, when I was yeah. watching it this this current time, I was thinking, yeah, she's she's gay as well. And this is why this all exists is because, as we know, like, you know, rabid people who are uh, homophobic or often it's because they are gay themselves. You really see that in this film, I think, come forward. Oh, I was going to say, and also Kathy Moriarty, um, anyone else who was really into Casper. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, it's the same character, but a little (laughs) more sinister. Like, (laughs) that's a very good point. And I mean, coming back to a year in film, um, she's, of course, known for mostly for Raging Bull when she was like, I think she's like 18 in that film going on 55, like in terms of how she looks and her very raspy voice. Stunning woman, but like just played, looked so much older than her years. And so, yeah, that gruffness is really here in the, that film, uh, in, in But I'm a Cheerleader, and it, it works well. Like, when she's trying to teach them how to do diapers and, like, <laughs> vacuum properly. And these are all um, performative domestic tax- tasks that are extremely choreographed to be sexual. So it's, like, in and out, in and out. In and, <laughs> and everyone's getting really horny watching it. And I just, I'm just like, I love this so much. But it's I not love, even... Love it. The covertness, their graduation is that they have to do a simulated sexual act yes. with a member of the opposite sex, which I can see people watching this and being like, sorry, what is happening While now? wearing like, flesh-toned so... uh, leotards. With, yeah, like, with little with Adam and Eve vibes, yeah. like the leaves. Yeah. Yeah. So wild. Um, but I, that's the thing that I think is so interesting about this film is that it's talking about not only do the, the queer couple who are lesbians end up together and not one of them doesn't die, um, like nobody's punished Hooray! for it. Yay! Um, they also are looking at a you're also looking at a movie that's talking about gender way before anyone was really associating gender with queerness and Jamie Babbitt wanted to do this because when she was coming out she is a lesbian when she was coming out she was um, her family was like well you can't be gay because you're so feminine like this doesn't make any sense and so her having those two gender divides and being very clear this is for boys this is for girls is really interesting but so fundamentally flawed in that why the hell would you put a bunch of people who were attracted to each other into a buddy system (laughs) yeah nothing about conversion camps make any sense um i do love my favorite part about their like group therapy is they have to go around in a circle and define the moment that made them potentially gay and there's two there's there's two that i love there's the one where one woman goes my mother got married in pants yes that's and then also Mm -hmm. yeah the other the other um one of the goth girls is like I was born in France. <laughs> End of story. And it made me laugh so much this time around. Yeah, everyone's, yes, yes, obviously. Yes, that's what we did. <laughs> and I realized that when we finished swimming lessons, we would change in front of each other. And that's it. Why I'm a homo. Andre, that's what kids do after swimming lessons. Change. Everybody does that. 
It's funny because we, we earlier this season we talked about Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and we talked about those moments where they do flash back to the reason why they are gay. And it is played very tongue-in-cheek, um, even though it is stuff like, I was abused as a child, I was more into dolls than anything else. Mm. And that's, and but again, people watching that would be like, oh yeah, yeah, that's exactly what made them gay, as opposed to how freaking absurd, they just are gay. It's not that one, like yeah. sometimes you have that moment of awakening. Like for me, it was Ryder Strong with no shirt on on Boy Meets World. I'm like, oh, I'm straight, got it, thank you. So. <laughs> For me, it was Christina Ricci, Adam's Family Values. Like, oh, bless you, Christina choice. Ricci. Well, a great, I mean, I, I'll bring up his name again, a great David Krumholtz performance right there. <laughs> Love David Krumholtz. Exactly. But it's so weird, this idea of like, you have to pinpoint exactly when you are like, you, you figure out what you're into. Like, it's very, even yeah. that is a method of absurdity, which as you're saying, this is addressing this way before anybody else has. Yeah. And yeah, I do love and- the point you bring up about uh, these conversion camps and putting, you know, people... Uh, who are going to be attracted to each other? It just like feels like an Olympic village. Like you're just asking <laughs> yeah. for a fuck fest. Like, it looks like can Sochi. I say <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. you can. You can say fuck fest. Fuck fest. Great, is great, great. Fuck. There you um, go. That's that's two of your three, Alicia. You get one more. <laughs> oh yeah, we had to limit my fucks. Oh, you're done. <laughs> oh, no! um, definitely the production design on this, which. Reading reviews from the era, from 2000, really, the production design got criticized, which I don't get. But I was reading that it's really, like, Babbitt was really going for Edward Scissorhands meets Barbie, David LaChapelle, and obviously John Waters. And it's just such, um, it's almost like Pleasantville, but in color. (laughs) I can't really explain how candy-coated, pastel, shiny, vinyl everything it looks great in 2021. It's very much for me a time capsule of those David LaChapelle years um, where everything was like candy colored and, and just, yeah, I just think it, it looks really great. Um, and it's the cinematography is really good. It's just a really competent film. And I'm super, I'm actually, I shouldn't be surprised by how homophobically this was reviewed by most white male critics, like really mean stuff and the same a lot of the reviews were like well you know she's trying to do john waters but can't be accomplished like john waters but then those same critics the same year eviscerated john waters for cecil b demented so i'm like are you just never happy? jimmy babbitt also talked about the fact that a lot of elder statesman gays eviscerated this as well and the reason being is that they were like conversion camp is not a joke like it's period you cannot make jokes you cannot make something like harder about that. something so horrific which I get uh, that's that's satire, and I think as a satire it works because it's we, again we talked about something similar with Priscilla Queen of the Desert, where if you want people to sit down and actually think and talk about this stuff, you can't be like, here are the horrors of conversion therapy upon you. Yeah, absolutely. You can't just drop that in someone's lap because uh, the the truth of what it is is so horrific that anyone would go through that. But I think that the way that it's presented is so is so shiny and so comical. It it looks like a cartoon. Um, so it gives you an angle onto this that you can actually kind of process what it is and see like there are yeah. like beautiful moments within that, even though it's such a nightmare and such a, a horrible I mean, her thing. her parents send her here. And when she I can't remember what she has some infraction that she gets caught. I can't remember. But um, basically, she has one chance or she's going to get kicked out. And her mother, played by Ming Stoll, and her father is yeah. fucking Bud Court. Oh, I'm one <laughs> fuck over. Sorry. Bud Court from Harold and Maude, among other things. Um, they tell her yeah. she's not welcome home if she gets kicked out. If she Unless she can convert to um, being straight, she they will not. They will cut her off. She's only 17. You know, there is a cruelty in this film that the risk is very, like, the the stakes are high. They're really high. And I think there are films that exist that are, you know, for for lack of a better term, kind of tragic porn around queer stories. And this is one of the only ones I can think of that isn't. The only other one maybe that comes to mind, it's it's just a side character, but it's the year before an election, which is, I think her name's Kimberly, Kimberly Campbell, the actress, I can't remember, the actress, she actually recently passed away, who plays Tammy, um... Chris Pine's like gay sister and she has sort of you know a fully realized lesbian relationship at like 15 and like she's a great character that was you know I think that's a film that normalized just youth and lesbians but I mean there weren't many and so I get it even now like I feel like it's only within the last few years that we started getting to see real beautiful fully realized queer relationships that don't end up infringing like yeah. uh and that's still happening today where <laughs> characters like who here's this beautiful yeah, relationship yeah. No, and comedies dead. like straight comedies and the big thing too is like we're coming out of the aids crisis like the aids crisis is still a crisis but like it's it 
it killed so many people in the 80s and 90s that people there were like, look, we can't we can't treat this like a joke. We're still fighting. We're still doing this. So the idea of having a comedy like so close on the bleeding edge of that happening and so many people losing their partners is, you know, I, I, I can see why people would be very challenged by this film. But then I can see someone who was young enough yeah. to or young enough to have not gone through all that being like, it's time. It's time to have something to laugh again and to be to celebrate what we are and celebrate that kind of love. Yeah, and even little little things for me when I was younger, seeing like Rufio as a gay yeah, as a gay man, you're like, yeah. yeah, and it's it's tying in your childhood and these figures, uh, and it's kind of a permission that it's okay, it's okay to be you, it's okay to you know sometimes you have to give up things to be able to be yourself. Like Graham's character yeah. is an heiress, uh, and yeah. her family's like, if you are gay, you get no money, and the idea of just like it's worth it just to be yourself and. I, it's I I love it. I think it's I I understand why there's a generation that wouldn't uh, that makes a lot of sense. But I think that that is the constant struggle with queer with queer communities is the elders uh, even just using the word queer. That word is so offensive to another generation of of uh, gays and lesbians. So just it's it's a, almost this like uh, transition movie to be like okay, we're coming out of this and now here, this is for the next generation. Even if that wasn't Babbitt's original intent, mm-hmm. um, it was really a, a transformational film, I think, for a lot of people. It is remarkable seeing, I do think it happened instantly with this film. It became a cult classic within a year of its release, which very few films that happens for. It usually takes time. And I was quite excited to see, mostly last year upon its 20th anniversary, um, this is released at TIFF in 1999, it actually premieres in Toronto in 1999, Yay! and goes on to see yeah, it goes on to Sundance in 2000. is released theatrically in 2000, which is why we're calling it a 2000 film, even though if you go on IMDb, it says 99. Um, really, last year, like so many organizations, both dedicated to LGBTQ plus and otherwise, celebrated the 20th anniversary of this film with either screenings with with the director in attendance. Um, do I know there's a new release of this film with like an audio commentary that hadn't been done before and so secret like, scenes? Yeah, like the cheer, so cool. ri- them writing the cheer um, that comes later on. That wasn't in the original release, mm-hmm. and rewatching it and watching her at, in group, like explaining why cheers are important to her, was so fun and great yeah. it was just like a aha moment oh i loved it i love it so much yeah i'm so happy for this film i'm so happy that this is um not niche anymore and actually just um a canonical like mid kind of cult midnight movie whether for both for all for all inclusive you know communities like it just well, is a great story and it's worth noting on here too i don't think we've really talked about it how many people of color uh are in supporting yep. roles of this movie yeah. um you know it's unfortunate that rosario dawson was not cast because <laughs> the world's racist um yeah. but babbitt made sure that there was still a lot of representation from a lot of different um communities of color and that's mm-hmm. so lovely like there's rufio there's rupaul there's um yeah i think it's andre um the, the mm-hmm. sweet little sissy i love douglas him so much. douglas spain that's the yeah. character, uh, actor's name yeah so it's it's so nice to also see not just queer representation but well, that uh, and you're seeing a character who's jewish as well who he and his family he has his own little like pvc uh yamaka which is amazing he he has a great line where he's really yeah. trying he's really trying to be straight and he i think he's paired at one point with natasha leon in the in the buddy system and he screws up and he's like i just I forget all these things. Right. Bring her the piece of cake. (laughs) (laughs) He's always like, can I have cake? (laughs) And he wants the cake brought to him. He's like, bring the girl the piece of cake. (laughs) Uh, I mean, the other thing I want to talk about, too, is that, I mean, there's so many things that, like, kneecapped this movie. But one of them is that it was originally given an NC-17 rating, which is, like, the kiss of death. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in this is NC-17, which is just fucking bonkers. No, not even... Not even borderline. Like, I I know we've talked about Adam McGoyan's film, um, Where the Truth Lies, getting NC-17, because it showed a sex scene um, with two men, and there was, like, I think one and a half too many thrusts or something like that that got at the NC-17. But then another film that showed a heterosexual um, sex scene didn't, that was, like, more graphic. So we know the MPAA is incredibly, was and probably still is, homophobic body of people who um, judge 
queer texts very differently than they judge hetero texts. And this this is a, a great example of what happens. This quote absolutely kills me because Jamie Babbitt actually was able to argue it down to an R, which is still insane. But I think this is PG-13. Like, at yeah. most, this is a PG-13 film. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, apparently the woman said, well, the love scene was very dark, and I'm sure there's terrible Terrible? things happening in that darkness. What the fuck? Oh, five. Oh, I've gone over. (laughs) And then she says, so what about if I lighten it up and I show you that there's actually nothing happening? I made it dark because nothing was happening. And she says, okay, fine. And then she said, you also have to cut out any mention of a woman going down on another woman, even though there was also, um, there's also a lot of discussions about men going down on men, but because women can't have pleasure. Don't you know? Women Wild. are not allowed. No! <laughs> there is a great scene where um, whenever they feel sexual urges, they're coached oh, into Christ. shocking themselves. And one of the, the goth character uses the shocker, which looks like a dildo or a vibrator, and like basically pleasures herself in yeah. this like room where she's sleeping with everyone. And you just the, zaps the zaps and zaps with Graham's and it, sock. <laughs> I, lo- I do love that scene. It's, it's like sneaking great. it under the <laughs> Yes. Yes. That's right. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you haven't seen this movie, it is iconic yeah. it is classic yeah. it's got so many stars that you will recognize and love um in roles that i think are just so beautiful and pure and the performances are just so genuine and lovely please I, we didn't even mention richard mall and his mm-hmm. beautiful uh trying to like save yeah. the gay kids um mm-hmm. Yes, which is also another huge mm-hmm. thing. But again, I think that's that's another one of those things where like you can't write this off as just being pure fluff because you're seeing people who are in a functional gay relationship when he has his conversation with Larry Bear and they are like showing this is how I feel. And you actually are watching two men, two adults discuss their feelings in a relationship and how they are working through an issue. You know, I am just asking a simple question. I'm not interrogating her. Into that aggressive space again. Can I even ask a question around here? Now I feel you moving into your victim stance. I was not attacking. I was verbalizing. I just feel like you don't value my opinion anymore. Seems like nothing I do pleases you, and I feel inadequate. Oh, I love my Larry Bear. Lloyd's sorry. Larry Bear's sorry, too. And you're like... Holy shit, I don't see that in movies now. <laughs> that's that's, that's stuff that I didn't it's learn so until good. like n- the last couple years of how to communicate like that. Like so I feel like stuff if you're a fan of family values, um which you said you are because that that was your I mean that is a that's that's a marriage to kind of emulate. If you watch the Adams family films, I would say like that is the best communication in a marriage I've ever Their goals. Like seen on true film. couple goals is watching Morticia yeah. and Gomez and their <laughs> Just how much respect and love that they have for each other. And people treat them like they're this weirdo family, but they have the best family dynamics that, and like, they just love each mm-hmm. other and they love their kids and their kids love them. And it's, oh, it's beautiful. And I want Carol Kane to be my grandmother too. So I get it. <laughs> I hope that people show but I'm a cheer- cheerleader to kids, yeah. like, or like youth, yeah. like, you know, adolescence over the age of 13, let's say, where it's reasonable to have these kinds of conversations because it, it's not a film that should ever have gotten rated r let alone nc-17 um and i didn't check on what it's currently rated but it probably still has that r rating um, i think so and it, i wouldn't be surprised but for people to kind of get an idea of like the sense of humor if you think this might be for you she is also known for directing a t- uh, jamie babbitt is known for directing a ton of gilmore girls a ton of silicon valley mm-hmm. um she's working on the new a league of their own and she also teamed up to do a bunch of uh, russian doll as well she directed a bunch of the russian doll episodes Aww, and then like little reunion exactly and then clea duvall also put both melanie melanie linsky and and Natasha Leone in her most recent film, which I believe is called The Intervention. She's now a writer-director. And so it's like all these mm-hmm. people obviously had such a great experience with each other that they've all sort of brought each other along, which I, I think that's the biggest sign that a movie is meaningful and has gone well to, like, influence everybody. Yep. As, as you go along, go watch Russian Doll if you haven't and seen it. God damn that movie holds awesome. up. It, it aged really, really well. Um, And I think part of that is obviously it was ahead of its time in terms of queer representation and representation in general. And you watch it now and it could have just come out now. Like it's it's of that level and Mm -hmm. of that intelligence and self-awareness. Also, just want to say, if you ever do a League of Their Own episode, please call me. Talk about a beautiful gay movie that isn't really a gay movie, but is a gay movie. Oh, it's a gay movie. Noted. Yeah. yeah. Fried Green Tomatoes is there as well. It's just one of those. It's a covert lesbian movie. Shh, the lesbians. Um, I do I do want to point people towards just quickly because we, we've been doing a lot of documentaries or a lot of uh, recommendations here. Um, if people have not seen 1992's uh, Forbidden Love, The Untold Stories of Lesbian Lives, which is a documentary from the NFB, Steph is like, what is this? Have you Mm-mm. seen this, Steph? 
No, I cannot. She's writing stuff yes, down. Yes, I, I cannot recommend this enough. It's a documentary from the NFB, and it is um, interviewing women about pulp lesbian fiction, as well as what it was like to be a gay gay woman in Canada in um, growing up in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, they cover people of color. There's a black woman. There's an indigenous woman talking about what it was like to be both those things. It is talking about some of the harder subjects, but it's also so joyous and so fucking funny, and I, I, I can't recommend this enough. So yeah, you can watch that one through the NFB, and so if people want more of that good lesbian shit, you're going to want to do that. NFB.ca slash film slash forbidden underscore love. It is now bookmarked. I'm watching this tonight. <laughs> You're going to love it, Steph. I'm so excited for you. All right. And I think that is just about everything for this week. So, Alicia Fletcher, thank you so, so much for joining us once again. Thanks, Becky. Power to the people and punish bad cinema. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, uh, Demented forever. And uh, Steph Malik, thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I am happy to talk about gay stuff any day of the week forever. (laughs) (laughs) Now, how do people see you talk about gay Uh, stuff? I actually have a new show coming out uh, in uh, July 13th. It's called The Fandom Show. And it's basically me inviting people on to talk about the things that they are deep, deep fans of and just uh, getting excited about the things that they love. So tune into that. We I yeah. love that. That's yeah, so great. It's very fun. Do you have a social media? You've got so you're on the Twitters. I follow yeah. you on the Twitters. You got a great yeah. Twitter. Yeah, your cats. It's amazing. mostly my cats <laughs> and mostly me getting mad at politicians these days. Um, but it's <laughs> <laughs> like Twitter yeah. is for cats and politicians. Yeah. Stephanie yep. underscore Malik uh, M A L E K. Uh, come follow me. Come yell about Doug Ford with me. <laughs> beautiful thank you so much and you can join us next week as we head into space we're looking at red planet and mission to mars with the fantastic adam Naiman. that's coming up next week thanks for joining us for this episode of the a year in film podcast from hollywood suite if you enjoyed the show please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform want to email the podcast you can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen, on four HD channels and at Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Alicia Fletcher, Becky Shrimpton, and Cam Maitland. Today's guests were Alicia Fletcher and Stephanie Malik. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next time.